The Pod Doctors is brought to you by the Kindle book, Saving Limbs, Saving Lives, Advanced Treatments to Prevent Amputations in Diabetic Populations. This book by Dr. Damien Dauphiné discusses specific patient cases in diabetic limb preservation, which highlight the modern use of wound care technology that has exploded in the last 20 years. With only one advanced therapy available in 1999, there are now hundreds of options to help close chronic wounds in diabetic patients. Dr. Dauphiné distills these options down to show patients and physicians treating these patients how combinations of these products can be used to save limbs and save lives. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, board-certified foot and ankle surgeon, and my partner, Dr. Rafa Hussein, fellowship-trained podiatric surgeon, and we are The Pod Doctors. Each week, The Pod Doctors will be discussing aspects of podiatric medicine and surgery to educate our audience on common foot and ankle problems and the latest treatment options available. We hope to bring you interesting and informative shows each week discussing all the crazy ways that our wonderful foot can malfunction and cause us problems. So please find us on all the platforms where you find your typical podcasts, uh, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and YouTube where you can view our videos. So please like and subscribe, and we will see you next time on The Pod Doctors. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, and I'm here with my partner... Dr. Rafi Hussein. And we are going to jump right into Jones fractures, which are a pretty common fracture we see in the office, but one that can be quite complicated. And we'll kind of get into why that's the case. Yeah. Fifth metatarsal fractures, I feel like, are probably the most common metatarsal fracture that we see in office. I mean, would you agree? That and maybe March fractures or that second oh, yeah. second met fracture. Those those two are very, very common for different reasons. But this one, this one can have some healing complications oh, and yeah. oftentimes requires surgery. And I'm sure we're going to get right into that. But so yeah. what happens? I mean, we have a patient come in. They say, "Doc, my foot's killing me. I think I broke something. I think I hurt something." They'll come, you know, hobbling in, and uh, they'll have pain, swelling, bruising, pain along that lateral prominence, that fifth metatarsal, you know, base, that little bump on the side of your foot. And Sometimes they feel it snap. Sometimes. Yeah. It just hurts. Yeah. And yeah. interestingly enough, uh, a lot of them will come in and be like, yo, I've been walking on this, and I don't think it's broke because I can walk on it, but what do you think, you know, and, and we'll go through our little clinical exam. So, you know, we'll, we'll see the bruising, the swelling, the, the pain, the tenderness, and we'll, we'll feel around, you know, we'll, we'll be touching those sites, the fifth metatarsal base, uh, along the peroneal tendons, because those are commonly injured, uh, the fifth metatarsal shaft, and um, I mean, there's a lot of things that can go wrong around that little lateral side of your fifth metatarsal that prominence i mean a lot of a lot of forces acting on that bone yeah you have mm-hmm. you know your fifth metatarsal fracture your emulsion type fracture your you know your jones fractures uh, you have your um, peroneal enthesiopathy you know your insertional peroneal tendonitis uh, Islands, you know disease or, or deformity or apophysitis or whatever mm-hmm. people are calling it nowadays um you can have um uh, osperoneum syndrome you know sure the accessory bone that's in there, I mean, you can also chalk that up to a, a pronotendinitis also. Sure. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on uh, along that lateral column. Cuboid syndrome, I don't know. Yeah. That's not too common, but still. People who've had EPFs, you know, if you've had an yeah. endoscopic plantar fasciotomy, you might be developing cuboid syndrome. Uh, that osperonium can irritate the cuboid notch. It could be irritating the tendon. So yeah. I've seen seen that several times. So 
those come in waves. It's weird. I, I'll see like three or four of those in, in a week and then not see them again for six months. Yeah. It's far in between. I feel like I see like one or two a year. Nothing too crazy. But like when it comes in, you're like, oh, this is, and you put that little simple pad there or mm. you go through your orthotics and I mean. They usually do well. Yeah, they do But these really folks, well. these folks are usually in pretty significant pain. Yeah. Like this young lady trying to walk here. But uh, if it was just a standard fracture, they're not usually displaced. No. So you wouldn't think it would be difficult to heal. And that's the, the problem with these fractures. If you can see the, the anatomy right here, you have your peroneal tendons putting traction on that bone there. So it's kind mm -hmm. of pulling them apart. Um, so what do we do? We get our imaging, right? We're suspicious for a fracture, and we'll get some imaging here. So some of these are and some of these aren't right. your Jones fractures. I was going to so. say that bottom larger Radiograph is classic that would get diagnosed as a fracture by maybe an your ER, ER physician yeah. or primary care doc, and, and you're looking at that and like, nope. It's just a super large osperonium, yep. osperonium or ossifsalianum, depending on you know yes. where it is. Um, Essentially, it's an it's a ossification center that never attached to the main bone. Yeah, right. uh, children have a multiple uh, ossification centers, but they have a specific ossification center on that little distal tip of that uh, that mm -hmm. fifth metatarsal base. And if it never attaches or ne never, um, you know, solidifies to the surrounding bone, it just floats there. And it's mm -hmm. inserted in the tendon. Usually it's something we say uh, secondarily on the, yeah. the tendon. Sort of a coincidental finding. Yeah. And sometimes they cause problems later on in life, but you don't usually see them in kids because there's no reason to x-ray them. Yeah. So here's a, a small avulsion fracture, not a Jones fracture, small right. avulsion fracture off that base. You can tell it's an avulsion because of the jagged edge. Uh, if it was smooth and nice and you know clean, we would think it's an ossificellianum. Mm -hmm. um, here is another small avulsion fracture, uh, and we'll go st uh, determining you know what type of fractures are Jones, what types are avulsions, which are stress. You know what qualifies as a true Jones fracture. The only true Jones fracture here is this one right here. Right, here. and that's based on the region of the bone where the fracture lies. Yeah. So here I got, I got some good pictures of what what Jones fractures really are. Nice. So. Your classic Jones fracture, and what we're seeing as far as Jones fractures are uh, the um, articulating surface between the fifth and fourth. That's typically your sweet spot to where it truly is a Jones fracture. Mm -hmm. um, so here, another one, nice little gapping there, a little wedging type of uh, action, and, and they demarcate this one really well. Uh, that's where your your Jones fractures truly lie, and um, I mean simple. That one there is kind of right on the edge, but yeah, it's still still right. If you look at the yeah. articulation with the fourth, it, that's that's in the zone. Yeah. Yep. So, why are Jones fractures uh, so complicated? Why are we going through this? So, Jones fractures are known to be at risk for what's called a non-union. A non-union happens when the blood supply or the area uh, that needs to heal isn't healing as well, and your bone's trying to push to heal. It's not healing, and it it just becomes a chronic fracture, painful, tender, and obviously uh, unstable. So there's different classification systems that we can go through. Uh, not important uh, as far as if you know if you're looking at this um, as a, a a patient, but if you want us to go into this more clinically, I mean we can go through TOR, we can go through Stewart classification. I think it's fun. I don't think people want me to tell you about the classification systems. They're there. If you want more information on them, you can Google them and find information on yeah. them. So it, it's a way of being able to describe the different versions, um, but they all tend to add up to healing problems, yeah. which is, from a clinical standpoint, most important thing. So why we become a little more aggressive with this type of fracture. So 
generally speaking, when we're talking to patients, we'll be talking about if it's a true Jones fracture, it's an avulsion or tuberosity avulsion fracture, stress fracture, shaft fracture, or head and neck fracture. So this is kind of a, a general um, idea of what we're looking at um, on the x-rays, uh, trying to decide if it's a true Jones fracture. Here is nice because they show the apophysis and the ossus helianum here. So that's in a kid. Yeah, Obviously that's you can see pediatric. You all can. those other areas where they have growth plates that haven't closed yet. Yeah. Yeah. So we said that fifth metatarsal fractures are very common. Here, uh, I pulled up a study. Uh, out of 400 metatarsal fractures in 322 patients, over 50% of them were um, fifth metatarsal fractures. Yep. And then, uh, I don't know, whatever, 10% of them are true Jones fractures. Uh, pretty high. And then uh, here's something that I thought was interesting. The most commonly injured body part while walking, forty-two percent <laughs> is your foot. You'd imagine it'd be your foot, but you know sure. people injure themselves. You know, walking, stumbling, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it might be. But um, yeah, <laughs> keeps us in business. Yeah, and then uh, a general uh, what we were talking about earlier that over about fifty percent of fractures in the metatarsals are most commonly your fifth metatarsal. It's just super high, very common. Um, so what happens? The mechanism of injury. This is a this is the fun biomechanics of what really happens. Uh, typically, uh, you, you know, up to you, or what do you think? Uh, typically, supination type injury, they put pressure on it, and it, that puts a traction, and you get sort of that uh, that weird... Um, it's a combination, but I, I think, yeah, I think that's the position that puts you at risk. Yeah, so, so very common in soccer, very common in basketball. Basketball, oh yeah. yeah. Occasionally down. you'll see them in baseball players, but it's usually in a sliding injury, yeah. where they're sliding into the base, and, they, that. and the, you just get that tremendous force, yeah, so and the tendon is yanking the bone. Yeah, so you have that pressure from the ground pushing up towards that fifth metatarsal head, and that's slightly turned in, right, supinated, mm-hmm. right, when you turn your ankle in. And it pushes up on that fifth metatarsal, and it's pushing. Then your peroneal tendons, which are antagonistic to that force, are pulling here, and you get sort of like that. that and, and they'll fire just based on stretch receptors. Oh, yeah. So it's a feedback, very fast feedback loop. Yeah. To help you not break things, but it does it so violently in some cases yeah. that it will break bone. So it's a, it's a feedback loop that was probably designed to protect you, but in this case, yeah. if you're in the wrong position, it'll actually cause the fracture. It's, it's that, uh, what's that test they do for, for children when they're like newborns to check if they have their guard sensors where they, they lift them up just slightly and they let them go and they, they, yeah. they, they flail it's a, out? It's a, yeah, it's, it's a reflex. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so here's a good depiction of what's going on. That's that, nice. Yeah, yeah. The peroneus brevis, the peroneus tertius. They're pulling, uh, and uh, that traction from the pressure that's coming up towards that fifth metatarsal and and pushing it, you know, dorsal medially. That traction, uh, it's just simple. It it's bound to happen. Um, I couldn't find a great picture, but um, those are pretty good. Those are pretty descriptive. That's nice. That shows you know the the two tendons that are likely involved. Not everybody has a peroneus tertius. Yeah, but, that's um, but the peroneus brevis that that little bugger is a, it's a powerful muscle tendon yeah. unit, and it's it's also associated with avulsion fractures in people who've just sprained their yeah. ankle and they break off bone because that tendon is literally trying to prevent a, an ankle fracture. Very commonly missed. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you said that because, you know, we're looking at big things as far as, you know, ankle sprains. We're like, oh, yeah, it's a fracture of the fibula, the tibia. It's a, you know, lateral ankle tear. And it's very easily missed. Mm-hmm. And I feel like 
I'll catch it on the lateral x-ray sometimes, and I'm mm-hmm. like, all right, let's get a, a DP and a, and a medial oblique, and we'll catch it on the foot, you know? And, and sometimes patients don't even realize anything happened Because they're hurt so many different areas. Yeah. But, yeah, that's one you don't want to miss. Because of that tendon attachment, it'll just continue to distract the bone yeah. if you don't uh, immobilize them. Thankfully, with that type of injury, with an ankle fracture or a bad sprain, yeah. you're going to probably immobilize them for a period of time anyway, so you kind of, you're going to treat both problems. But, yeah, you don't want to miss it. So why Jones fractures are so important. So Jones fractures, like we said, are higher risk for non-unions. Depending on who you read, they estimate about 40 to 50% of these are at risk for non-unions that undergo conservative therapy. Right, yeah. right. Those would be those that don't end up going to the operating room to fixate these. Yeah. Right. And then when surgery, it's like 90%, 99, 95%, something like that. Success rate. Success rate. Yeah, still right. not high for surgery, but still... As far as uh, compared to 50%, <laughs> quite an improvement. Way better. Yeah. So, so. We're, we're, I think you and I are both pretty aggressive with these. When yes. we see that that fracture in that area, we're going to put a screw across it or a plate across it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a watershed area. Your, your blood flow to this area is very poor. You have a couple of nutrient arteries that come down and, and you know, provide blood flow to the, to the metatarsals. And in this area, you have one region that's coming in and not getting enough to that base. And then you have another region mm-hmm. coming in. And with the injury, it gets shut off or, you know, broken Got through. And, lacerated. And mm. you get a hematoma in there and spacing it out even further. You have the traction from the peroneals. I mean. So think of the soft tissue component of that blood flow coming in from the tendon attachment. And then the large nutrient artery coming down from the shaft. Yeah. And they're meeting in the middle. In similar ways, watershed injuries of the Achilles are yeah, the same problem. Exactly. In the Achilles tendon in the back of the heel, you have blood flow coming up from the the Achilles attachment from the calcaneus and then down from the muscle. And you've got this area of relative uh, avascularity, three to six centimeters above the attachment. We call that the watershed of the Achilles where Achilles ruptures usually happen. So there's a reason why these things are happening from a blood flow standpoint and why you end up having um, healing problems after the fact. So if we attach this with a screw and we suck those tissues back together, we're giving it the best chance for that nutrient artery to heal and for blood flow to be restored to the area, especially, you know, sometimes when these are neglected, when they're yes. six, eight weeks down the line. Yeah, here's a, a non-union yeah, right here. You've got to carve that tissue out and then sometimes bone graft it. I, I do try yeah. to put bone grafts in these. If I older. would recommend it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Just so you don't lose length. So conservative treatment options, like I said, I'm very hesitant on these. And I tell my patients this up front. Uh, look, there's a high chance of this becoming a, a chronic problem, a non-union, a delayed union, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I'll have them in a boot. I'll have them off weight-bearing. I don't have them walk on it. I don't know what your protocol for Yeah, I like the knee scooters. I like the tall boots, though. I really don't use those short boots. I think yeah. this just they're too unstable. And or a cast. I think a cast yeah. is great. And these would maybe be patients who... Young, are, healthy. Maybe young, healthy non-smokers. Yeah. Um. Or folks who just are horrible candidates. So if they've just got tremendous peripheral vascular disease, they've got diabetes and peripheral vascular disease, and maybe they're also a smoker, that's going to be a really tough situation. You're you're talking about fixing one problem, and then with their past medical history... Potentially creating a new one. Yeah, I mean, you you might be causing a wound that would never heal. So you got to do your basics. Your basics would be get blood flow studies, uh, maybe consult with vascular... Yeah. figure out where they're at. And if they're still a candidate, then I would still recommend, you know, putting a screw across it, even if yeah. you do it percutaneously. Yeah, yeah. You don't need to make a big incision with this. You yeah. know, Luckily, you do- uh, these these are fairly 
straightforward when you do the, the single screw method. The angle to approach it's, for that single screw is tough, though. It's real tight. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's one of the most frustrating screw throws in the human body. It is so frustrating. Yeah. It's, it's, Dr. G, like, nail, I mean, that's nail on the head you, right These there. make it look easy because oh, yeah. these are perfectly placed. Like, these are, these are like, like these are lightsaber placed. I had to search hard for these. Yes, because so they're happens, not easy. So, Dr. G, Dr., what Dr. D is saying is when we throw that screw, and I don't know if you do cantilated or not. Can, I do cantilated for these. I do cantilated because just getting the dang guide wire in there is hard enough. Yeah, the old school method was a solid screw, right. which was really tough to do. Yeah, so what happens is I tell patients this up front. When they're booked for surgery, I'm going to attempt to throw a single screw across there. I give it a solid 15 minutes of me fiddling around, and most of the time I'm successful, which is mm. wonderful. Yeah. The times I'm not successful, rather than, you know, drilling out their fifth metatarsal shaft, I'll open it up and I'll put a nice hook plate across there. Right. But what happens is, and this shows it like it has tons of space, but what happens is we try to throw a K-wire down the shaft of this. The shaft is bowed, right? So that's one problem. So you think you got it. bowed in the wrong direction. Yeah, you got it. You're thinking I can throw it like this. No, you got to throw it, I mean, right down the shaft, like towards the fifth metatarsal Mm. neck and head. So you put that K-wire in there, and you're like, oh, I think I got it. And then you get your ladder, you're like, oh, I'm towards the dorsal cortex. I'm towards the plantar cortex. I'm not, you know, and you, you kind of run it through. You can even do it with fluoroscopy oh, live yeah. Oh, yeah. and still struggle with this. They because you've got soft tissue that's constantly banging into the drill. Yeah. It, it, it's you're just hugging not. the foot. I mean, yeah. you're literally, you're pressed Absolutely. up against it. If you're not pressed up against it, you're definitely going to miss. Yeah. And, um, it's easy to whiff. Now they have new guides and stuff for them, which have made it a lot easier for us. Have you seen those where they yeah. have like the little, little um, angulation guides where mm-hmm. you know it's going to hit the distal tip and it's like, I think it's like a 0.5 or a one centimeter difference or something like that. So you know it's going to be just anterior to that tip. Super simple. And um, those I mean, are pretty it, cool. It makes it a lot easier. But still, it, all guides aside, it's still a difficult It's a challenging throw. And that's for when they're nice and they're not displaced or there's not large gapping. That's what the ideal situation's for. When there's large gapping, if there's a chronic nature to them, if there's a non-union to them, then we talk about doing plates and hook plates and screws and staples and all that fun stuff. I'm a hook plate person. I don't like the, uh, uh, the staples. Oh, totally. I would do the hook plates over staples any day. And you got a nice picture in the middle there of an unfortunate screw throw. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they got compression across it, but like we said, they're not pretty. Yeah. If it gave compression, as you can yeah. see, the enemy they're, of they're good is better. What we're seeing, top view, top view is decent, right? That's your AP or your medial oblique. I mean, um, and you're seeing it's a decent throw. It's not the ideal. Ideal would be more down the shaft, mm-hmm. right? And a little a longer bit longer screw. and a larger screw too. Right. I usually use like a four, a four, four yeah. five, five zero, oh, five five. Sometimes depending on the size of the person. Yep. And um, and uh, yeah, uh, we try to do a long screw down the shaft. Kevin Durant like, had that injury. Yeah, like this. I mean, this is an ideal screw. Yep, that's a great one. So uh, yeah, KD had, I mean, he must have had like a 5.5. I mean, his feet are so <laughs> just, big. He's got like size just 15, a giant 16. Bolt. <laughs> yeah, that'd be, I'd love it if all of my fifth met fractures were Kevin Durant sized because, <laughs> geez, you'd have bigger anatomy. It's usually this little old lady with this tiny little fifth metatarsal, and you're trying to, how am I, how am I going to get that screw in there? But yeah, I mean, but that's, you're right. That's where the hook plates are great. You, do, you have to make a bigger incision. Yeah, uh, and, you got to dissect all that out, but the hook plates are awesome. Yeah, and sometimes while you're in there, uh, what I do is I'll, I'll kind of cure it out all that hematoma mm-hmm. and kind of cause like a little bit of um, um, bleeding on both sides of the bone sure. where the, the uh, nice healthy bleeding bone still lies. 
and then I'll pack it with bone chips or mm-hmm. allograft or whatever I have available, and I'll get that compression across there so there's a solid bony bridge from one end of that bone to the other end of that bone. Right. And, um, I mean... So you've got a lag screw there that's causing compression, yeah. and then the rest of the plate is really a buttress plate. Yeah, and uh, a lot of these new plates, um, I mean, I know the one that I use, I put the uh, these distal screws in after I get that compression across there. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll do this compression, I'll put this screw in there, and I'll get, there's a little guide or a little jig that compresses that even further, and then I'll yeah. put my locking screws uh, across those- there. Two sevens, those are pretty small. Yeah, two yeah, seven, yeah. three zero. Oh. Um, I think these are three fives right here. But okay. I mean, you know, if you do multiple small and, screws, and, and those are locking. These are locking. Yeah. I typically do locking, yeah, for which these. is a nice construct. Yeah, the only one that you're not doing locking is that lag screw. Right. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, uh, simple. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the staples. I think they're well for certain parts of the body, for certain foot problems also. But uh, I, I think you're better off doing the, these. Hook plates or straight I've plates. Seen, um, I've seen too many non-unions with yeah. them. Yeah. Chuck Norris approves. <laughs> Recovery is, uh, you know, just like any type of surgery, non-weight-bearing. You're in a boot or a cast or a splint or whatever. Um, knee scooter crutches. I typically have them non-weight-bearing for about six weeks. I don't know what your protocol is. Yeah. Um, Again, I like the taller boots. Yeah. Uh, I, I try to use the knee scooters. Um I think and external bone stimulators are great for this if you can get it covered. A lot, of, a lot of the insurers are paying for them right off the bat because they understand that Jones fractures are. Yeah, your your talus pain. and your Jones fractures yeah. uh, are known to be at risk for non-unions. Right. They'd rather so, pay for that than pay for a second surgery. Yeah, which is smart. Second yeah. surgery is always going to be more expensive. I'm a big fan of throwing whatever you can to get this to heal. Yeah. Bone stimulators are, are phenomenal. Very um, ininvasive. I mean, you literally just stick it to the top of your foot and turn it on. Yeah, the Exogen one we, that I like that is ultrasound. It's 20 minutes a day. Yeah. It's not asking a lot of the patient. So, yeah. yeah, those are great. And if you don't do it, there's a timer on there and let us know. So. If the patients aren't using it, <laughs> yes, it, it uh, monitors that. So then you can document that in the chart that the patient's been, been uh, naughty. But most people are really highly motivated. <laughs> you can put your swag in. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. I have seen some really, really pimped out uh, crutches in my day. I had one teenager I, I did some some reconstruction on, and, and her mom pimped out the entire crutch with both sides with uh, rhinestones. It was just Yeah, I've seen boots and casts like that. Man, hundreds just, and hundreds of them glued onto her crutches. It was, I had a, it was impressive. One guy in Houston back when I was in training, he had a purple cast because he's a, he was a Saints fan. Right? Mm, Saints purple. Yeah. Right? Well, I think New Orleans. He's from New Orleans, but yeah. I was in Houston at the time. And, uh, He's he a big Mardi Gras fan. And, uh, <laughs> and then he bedazzled, or someone bedazzled, the fleur-de-lis on the side of the cast. Nice. <laughs> it was just, That's it was perfect. perfect. If I had my druthers, I would wrap everybody in blue and gold casting <laughs> material and make everybody a Notre Dame fan. So, so my Irish right here. Well, um, I mean, anything else? I, did I miss anything? No, I think that was a great one for St. Patty's Day, where <laughs> everybody's Irish. So uh, if you have questions, uh, comments, please leave them in our YouTube feed and uh, listen to us on Spotify and Apple and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Tell your friends. Uh, You know, I think we've established uh, a pretty good collection. We've got 16, I think, episodes. Yeah, I think we're we're, we're We're cranking away. So we're going to start expanding out and doing some other things. But I think we've got a nice uh, collection of good information about very common problems that we see in the office every day. 
So thanks again, Dr. Hussein, and uh, thanks again for joining us. And we are the Pod Doctors, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Pod Doctors. We appreciate all of our listeners and subscribers. If you'd like to hear more, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and watch our videos on YouTube. Like, thumbs up, subscribe, and be safe. See you all next time. Bye-bye.